You're listening to a recording from the 2017 Mockingbird Conference held at St. George's Episcopal Church in New York City. Well, I guess we better get um, started so we can get to lunch on time. Um, I'm a lawyer, so I'm kind of long-winded, but uh, I'll try to keep it to uh, a minimum today. Um, it's my wife, Debbie. Y'all met her earlier. Um, so, as, as I said earlier, um, well, it's our, it, Debbie said, you know, it's our marriage testimony. But it's really about death and resurrection. It's really about coming to the end of who we were and finding Christ. And uh, it's probably uh, providential that we're here for the uh, 10th anniversary of Mockingbird, given this is our 30th wedding anniversary. And uh, I, it's, you, you know, people will say, well, Ellis, you idolize Paul Zoll. No, I idolize the message that Paul Zoll has, the message that is, has come through his sons uh, and is the message of Mockingbird. But it, it is not, uh, it would not be an overstatement to say that we would not still be married uh, had I not gotten involved in Paul Zoll's Bible study at Cathedral Church of the Advent in January of 98. And I went there for six years, and my wife went to another Bible study, which she'll tell you about, where she heard a similar message. And that was God's grace, his uh, coming down into our lives. Um, but anyway, I'm a lawyer. Debbie was a nurse. Um, we uh, met um, in a bar um, after 11 one night. She was working 3 to 11, and I was there with some other law clerks, and it was us and her and she, her friends, and I proposed to her within a week. <laughs> uh, I thought he was she, crazy, and now I know he is. <laughs> you know, that's it. But anyway, she was the person I thought I always wanted, um, and she is now, and we are for each other through Christ. But uh, it didn't go well for the first 10 years, and we'll talk about that. And I would say the reason it didn't go well for the first 10 years is we both brought uh, expectations based upon prior wounds into the marriage. Um, it's funny, we have never belonged to the Advent in Birmingham, although it is the church that has meant more <clears throat> in our lives than anything else. As our preacher at Covenant Press says, Presbyterian, God works in perplexing and enigmatic ways. <clears throat> well, there's, for us to have been so blessed by Paul's all in the cathedral church, it's just never worked out to be a member there. We, we were, were the but, outreach ministry. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, but anyway, I, I wanted to start off with a quote. Um, there are any number of ways to approach the, um, hey, there's any number of ways to approach our um, marriage testimony any number of themes. You could look at law, grace, death, resurrection. Today we want to talk about wounds. And um, the reason we're going to talk about wounds, y'all could, if you want to grab, other, if there are other chairs out there, grab. Um, and you can sit in the door. I mean, as long as there's no fire. No, <laughs> uh, no, no, no. Yes, that's a great idea. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. Uh, so this past Sunday, our current um, Pastor Bill Boyd, who Matt knows, was preaching on Doubting Thomas. 
and you know we hear doubting Thomas every year and about his doubts and faith and what have you. Yeah. Well, Bill Boyd focused on the wounds. And are there any other? Um, I think well, we're good. sorry, I guess we're good. And and this is how Bill opened his sermon on doubting Thomas. <clears throat> he said, "This is a passage about wounds. It confronts us in our own woundedness." It's very uncomfortable to read. I wouldn't let anyone else see my wounds, much less put their hands in them. In World War II, soldiers became shell-shocked. They were surrounded by so much trauma and experienced so much pain that they locked up, went numb in order to survive. After Vietnam, it was called PTSD, and their wounds seemed to mean nothing given the outcome of the war. 9% of Americans will experience PTSD at some point in their lives. You don't have to go to war to get it. You can get it in marriage. You can get it in friendship. You can get it at work. You can get it at church. The truth is that wounds are a part of war. (laughs) And ever since the fall, the state of mankind has been more or less warfare a state of being inflicted with wounds and inflicting wounds. Since Adam and Eve, our best efforts have been in treating and covering our own wounds. So that's what Bill preached Sunday. Mm-hmm. And we sort of redid our talk a bit to focus on that. So, um, as I said, we met uh, in a bar one night. Uh, we were there with our friends and within a week I had proposed to Debbie, she thought I was crazy, but about a year later, after I graduated from law school, we got married. And, you know, what I brought into marriage were uh, the, the wounds of a mother who thought I was literally going to be president. Okay, you know, some, who was it earlier this morning who was saying, uh, you, you know, when there's so much uh, uh, praise given you that that's a, a problem? Well, that, that was a problem for me because... Um, you know, Debbie didn't praise me like my mother. <laughs> to, to, to Debbie, I was not, you know, the most intelligent man in the room. Um, yeah, so she didn't praise me like my mother. And I don't know, Debbie, why don't you tell them what, you're, um, what you brought into the marriage? Well, my expectation was that Ellis was going to be my knight in shining armor and help me set boundaries with people. My dad always said, be nice, be kind, don't trust anybody, but be nice to them. And um, I was kind of a yes person. I was a peace lover. And I would get myself in these relational messes where I'd say yes to everybody. And I thought, God, he does not people please at all. This is so wonderful. He will, he'll tell people no and um, move on. And I just loved um, his confidence and strength. I was always looking at both sides of the coin. And and I just really thought we made a great team. I was very relational and um, crowds and things could be exhausting to Ellis. I remember going with him to a law firm um, party, a clerk party, and just enjoying all the partners and the staff and mingling and having a good time. And he said, I'm so glad. You make me look so good. I'm so glad I'll have to talk to these people to this extent. I'm like, oh, this is great. We make a great team. So I'm expecting um, 
to never have to go through what my parents went through married. I came into my marriage with, I'm not, we're not going to fight. We're not having these fights I heard in my childhood. We're not going to um, have conflict. You know, I didn't even think about what do attorneys do for a living. They do conflict. That's their, they love it. They thrive on it. I get up still and walk out of a TV show if there's too much conflict going on with the characters. Even though I know it's not real, I've got to go get away from it. It just makes me uneasy. So it was kind of the perfect storm heading into our marriage. Plus, we did not have a very long courtship, so we had not even experience some of that. Yeah, and I don't know that I don't know that a longer courtship would have helped. I mean, we knew each other for a year, although I was off at school. But it was fundamentally our different um, personalities. And you know, the adage opposites attract, I think that's divine. Because as we'll talk about at the end of the talk, um, you can, uh, when, when you start appreciating the other person for who they are, her strength is relational, my strength is more task-oriented, speaking the truth, be willing to confront conflict. So my strength offsets her, uh, or her relational offsets my weakness, which is if you are confrontational, you're, you're not always, uh, you're, the truth is more important sometimes than relationship and, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. But during our first marriage, I had a um, horrible temper um, and would, if, if I thought, uh, someone was, uh, you know, not respecting me like my mother <laughs> had, right? Or then I would just go off like this and I would say horrible things to Debbie like, well, you know, if you really loved me, X, you know? Mm-hmm. And if you don't do X, then I'll just get a girlfriend. Now, those are really kind things to say to your wife. <clears throat> but that's the way I am and I, I'd like to fight. So I like to fight in the courtroom. I like to fight wherever, although less so now, thankfully. But those are not good things. And then Debbie was the most, I thought she was the most stubborn person I'd ever met. Um, But the the thing about it was, I was so emotional at the drop of a hat, and she was sort of stoic. And I think she was stoic because she didn't know how to deal with my anger. You know, I would blow up and I'd apologize within a very few minutes. But the apology didn't take away the harm that I caused with my anger. <clears throat> um, and as our marriage progressed, not progressed, <laughs> as our marriage, I guess, got worse. You know, we had our first child. Uh, I worked all the time. The whole thing about work, somebody said earlier, my husband, the women on the elliptical, yeah, my husband works all that. He won't go on vacation. Well, that was me. And I was so worried about making partner. And Debbie actually was really supportive of, of that. But um, we, Uh, had gotten to the point in about 1997 where we were just leading separate lives. We were both, I thought, well, this is probably as good as it's going to get. She's a wonderful mother, but I'll never know her emotionally. And I don't know, what what were you thinking about that time? Well, I thought I'd stumbled in my parents' marriage, and so that was really sad, and I decided to do what they did, uh, let him work, which he did well, and I had a part-time job as a pediatric nurse and had two wonderful kids, and I felt like I was pretty much balancing it. I was fulfilling those life dreams of being a mom. I love children. That's why I chose pediatric nursing, and um, 
I loved Ellis the only way I knew how. I loved him just like that love language book says. I loved him from the way I wanted to be loved. And I'd married my opposite. I love acts of service and quality time. Those are not his too. <laughs> and I would keep trying and going around that mountain again and again. And I thought, God, he doesn't appreciate me at all. I just cooked him this great meal and he's working late and not coming home. Um, yeah. His, unfortunately, his love language was words of affirmation, and I didn't do those, y'all. And I didn't want those from him. I didn't believe anything he said once he lost his temper. If he ever said anything ugly, then I, that discounted all the nice things he said, too. And um, I didn't grow up with that. We didn't praise each other in our family. And so I was very suspicious of people that needed to hear and all he needed was encouragement, but I had a really skewed view of that. And um, well, you thought I'd get worse. Yes, I didn't want she a reward. If, yeah, she thought <laughs> if I say, now. okay, you know, praise me at all, then I would just get worse, right? I'd be even more incorrigible. Anyway, but so married in '87, so about '97. Um, I think we we just settled into separate lives. I worked. And Debbie was the mother, and um, and I and I finally I, I was uh, I thought about suicide every day for a year, which is ludicrous, right? Because I've got a beautiful wife, I've got uh, two children, and then we had a third. But every day, <clears throat> you know, I really didn't want to be around anymore. I remember one time driving to court out of town, I was looking at the trees, you know, pine trees or what we have in Alabama. And so I'm thinking, okay, well, that pine tree is big enough. If I hit it, I'll die. That one, I'll be a paraplegic. <laughs> I didn't want to remain a paraplegic. I didn't want to live. Um, and, and, and we both kind of got to the point where, and, and I, this, I think, may give you the level of, that is my level of, 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 of where, where I was and hit the bottom. As we were preparing for this testimony, Debbie told me a story, which um, I don't know that you can even tell it because it's about me, but it's, so we had had an argument. <clears throat> and Debbie said she went upstairs, got down on her knees and said, God, send the bus for me. Just take me away. I was never suicidal. I just wanted a chariot. I just wanted to be picked up and ushered into the next line. And you know, the ironic thing was God heard me. My 12-year-old daughter knocks on the door and comes in and gives me the biggest hug. I just needed comfort. And we could never comfort each other yeah. when we hurt each other or when the pain of life came on. And I thought, yeah. oh my gosh, maybe I won't have to exit now. I have been, you know, mad in my place of pain. And um, yeah. that was really a meaningful time for me to go. Yeah. He hears me. He, he didn't send the bus, but he did send <laughs> comfort. Yeah. And he encouraged me to stay in it. Yeah. And I'm now thankful that she was the most stubborn woman I'd ever met, or we wouldn't still be married, right? <laughs> so anyway, so in January of 98, this friend of mine said, why don't you come to Paul Zoll's Bible study? And at this point in time, I was Southern Baptist through and through. I was a deacon and a Sunday school teacher. People, when I was young, thought I was going to be a preacher. I mean, I was, you know, but I was self-righteous as hell. I mean, that's what it was, right? I was good. Other people weren't. Debbie wasn't. And you see where that got me. I was <coughs> suicidal uh, in my self-righteousness. So in January of 98, a, a friend invited me to Paul's All's Bible study. <laughs> and... Uh, 
he started talking about things I'd never heard before. Like, not only is grace necessary, not only is grace necessary for salvation, like the moment when you're saved, if, if, if it is a moment, but, you know, that, uh, it, but it's necessary for sanctification. You know, Luther said we're simul justus epicotter. Luther said we're simultaneously justified and a sinner. And you, Ellis, are going to be a sinner till you die. I'm like, okay. <laughs> but it took, and, and it's only by God's grace, not just now, but through the rest of your life, that you'll be less of a sinner. Um, this is a napkin from Paul Zoll's investiture when he was uh, dean of Trinity Episcopal School of Ministry. Uh, I'm sorry to say I got something on it, <laughs> which made me cry. But anyway, so law versus grace, <clears throat> strength and weakness, free will not. So if you're a Southern Baptist and you believed in free will your whole life and that you get what you uh, pay for, you get what you earn, this whole free will not thing was just like, it, it blew my mind. But what I realized was what he was saying was not that I didn't have free will to determine what sport coat I was going to put on this morning, although I'm wired a certain way the way I dress, so maybe I don't have free will in that area. <laughs> but, but then we have these deep down libidinal urges, like I want to kill people, right? I remember we heard Sarah Condon in, in, in um, Tyler, and she was talking about her deep down, like, you know, you're doing dishes with your husband. I just want to stick a fork in his neck. Okay, I, can, I understand that. That's me. Okay. Um, and, and so the free will not thing really started to, to ring a bell with me in the grace. So anyway, I had the good fortune of going to his Bible study for six years. And after I started going, I haven't had a suicidal thought since. Um, yeah, Mockingbird is pretty amazing. The Christ that we hear about at Mockingbird is pretty amazing. Well, mention what God did, too, to just make sure you bottomed out as far as your oh, health. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, it wasn't just the message, okay? So Paul Zoll always talks about how low's your bottom. Like, in other words... Some people can have a downturn in their uh, marriage, and then they're like, oh, wow, I, I need to be different. For some people, it takes their marriage and their health. For some people, it takes their marriage, their health, and their job, if you're a man. <laughs> and that's what happened to me. I had a client that ultimately went to prison, which shocked me that I had represented this guy and not realized. Uh, um, I found out I had this, uh, they diagnosed me with an autoimmune liver disease saying I'd need a, a liver in 10 years, a transplant. We have no control over your health. Turns out I had no control over my law practice. I couldn't figure out who it was. I did figure out who it was representing, but, you know, what? Uh, and then this is one of my favorite <clears throat> lines from Debbie. She said, um, you know, Ellis, um, um, if it weren't for the children, I would leave you. I'm plotting my escape when they graduate high school. Okay, so you didn't know it, but I was actually a prison warden, you know, for the first 10 years I'm married. But it's just such a, but that's who I was. I mean, and, and, and if you'd talked to any of my friends, they would not have thought, I don't think, that I was a prison warden. But with Debbie's sensibility and with my sensibility, and they were so different, that's what I wrought in our marriage. Um, and anyway, those things finally turned, made, uh, that was my, 
I had a really low bottom, in other words. It took God going after my marriage, my work, uh, and my health. And, uh, and for men, you know, if he goes after work, you know, that's why God put thorns and thistles in the, in the garden, right? So that men uh, will reach the end of themselves and find redemption. And Debbie, why don't you tell what your well, my, end of the road, your I bottom. guess my bottom was um, <laughs> finding out I was expecting my third child, and I had a six-month-old at home, my middle child. And um, I just had this feeling that I wasn't going to be able to hold it all together with three. I was going to be quite outnumbered. I had two hands. I did not want Ellis's help any more than I had to receive it. I was working part-time. I had him at a great daycare that would cut you no slack for three children. I didn't really make enough money to pay for all three of them to be at this luxury daycare. And um, I just had all these ideals of what it was like and what I wanted to be like as a mother. And I just, I knew it wasn't gonna happen with three. I had, and there were two babies, basically. They were 15 months apart. So during my pregnancy, I would go in to see the doctor and um, I'd just say every time, I can't believe I'm having a baby. <laughs> and you know, it's okay. I think they cut you some slack the first trimester to say that. But by the seventh month when you're saying that, and I literally only gained 18 pounds my whole pregnancy, where with the other two I ate as much food as I could possibly hold, I, um, he told me this story about a woman that gave her baby up for adoption, and I was horrified <coughs> that that's what I was giving off to him, that I just didn't want this baby when I you know, love, love kids. And it kind of brought me out of my denial into... You've, you are going to have a baby. And I started trying to hope in my circumstances that, you know what, I know what I'm doing. Hey, it's really not going to be that bad to have three kids. It'll all work out. And um, I gave birth to the little guy. He looked just like my dad, who we named him after. He's a wonderful son, but he had red hair. And, y'all, everything they say about redheads, I mean, they do, do have a temper. They do need a lot of attention. He wanted all of my attention 100% of the time, and I don't think he slept through the night till he was three years old. So I just, um, you know, I think I'd built my identity on being the best mother, being a wonderful nurse, being a wonderful wife. Well, I already messed up with the wife thing, and suddenly I was going to mess up with this dream I had to be my all in all, but probably for my children, which is the last thing they needed. Um, so I really started coming to the end of myself and looking outside myself to maybe I need something else. I need some help. And um, I got baptized with my daughter when she was in first grade. I grew up Methodist, and they sprinkled you. So my husband <laughs> encouraged me that I had had a real, he thought he could see a change in me and reaching out to Christ and depending more and, and so I got baptized that spring with my daughter, and it was so meaningful to me. And um, that fall, I had the children at a daycare other than our church, and I signed up for a Bible study. And y'all, that changed my life. Um, I, for once, I did not, I just picked this one titled, How to Have an Unmediated Relationship with God. And I thought, man, I could use that. How do you talk to God and get the answers about how to do day-to-day -day living? 
So I walked in there cold and have been there for 19 years. I cannot seem to graduate. I signed up, <laughs> I signed up for leadership, but this is why it was so unique to me as um, the, way sh the way it was set up is we got together and praised, listened to praise music, which was something I had never done and which she asked us to do at home and practice um, praising the Lord. And then she taught on prayer or various issues. But the thing that was so dynamic to me was then we broke out in small groups and um, basically confessed our sins to one another and prayed for each other. But she made a made it very clear that she did not want us coming and praying about our husbands or our children. This is about our journey with Christ. Certainly they impacted our circumstances, but I had to take Debbie to the front. And y'all, that was so hard because I really felt like if Ellis wasn't in my life, I would be okay. I really couldn't see my sins. I couldn't see my pride because I thought being an angry person was the worst thing you could be in my home. I mean, I was all about self-control with my emotions. So I thought, you know, really, if I had a husband that didn't blow up and didn't do this, honestly, I may not have needed Christ. I may have gone my whole life without breaking down and coming to the end of myself with these things. So I'm so thankful for that. Well, you know, I think given our time, what I, what I want to do now. So that was our first marriage. And that's how we came to the end of ourselves, or God brought us to the end of ourselves. I mean, the third one was a surprise. We were had to use infertility with the first two, and then all of a sudden the third one's coming along. And I mean, anyway, he had my personality, right? But he looked just like Debbie's side of the family. It was really pretty music. And I love this quote. Debbie goes, well, you know, if I can love James, even though he has this uh, confrontational type personality, then I guess I can love you. <laughs> I realized so I could kids, have a lot of slack. It's the funny <laughs> thing is our middle son is just like Debbie personality-wise, and I love him, and so I could love her anyway. Yeah. But, so that's the end of our first marriage. Our second marriage, we began treating each other with grace. We finally heard about this thing called grace, and I think while our first marriage was warfare, our second marriage was a truce. It's not even where we are now. We're on our third marriage. But I think... Debbie, if you'll tell them the story about your birthday, her birthdays, um, then this is to me the most emblematic thing. Just showing about how far we had come, um, God had brought us from our first to our second marriage. Her birthday is April 25th, so this is her birthday week. You know, the one thing I started discovering in that Bible study that leads into this testimony is that um, Christ loves me personally and individually, and that's what we were going over and over again. So it started freeing me up from this identity of being Ellis' wife, my children's mother. I'm a child of God. You know, what in the world does that mean? Well, it's really good news. And um, my birthday was approaching, and I just really felt like the Lord was telling me not to remind Ellis of my birthday. Uh, um, and I thought, God, what does that mean if he forgets? Maybe all, you know, maybe we're really not growing. Because to me, I thought that would be horrible for someone to forget their spouse's birthday. But I didn't tell him. And I got up that morning. And, of course, you know, if they haven't said anything the night before about where you want to go out to eat the next day, they've forgotten. And he did forget. But I got up the next morning. And instead of feeling overwhelmed and depressed that maybe 
our marriage wasn't growing in the way I thought. I had this expectation that something really good was going to happen. I felt like God was going to show up in some neat way. I just I looked for it all day. I just couldn't wait. Well, late that afternoon, um, a neighbor drove by that we carpooled with, and she said she really wanted to talk to me. And she told me she was getting a divorce. And we had our older children were the same age. And I was just shocked. I didn't expect that. Her husband had a similar temperament to Ellis's. And y'all, I just knew in that moment that was my birthday present from God. He was going to let me tell somebody about a God that cares about our pain and suffering and our marriages and how he had worked in mine and in most. I didn't even ask God to help me in my marriage. I didn't know he did stuff like that, honestly. I had no idea that he did. I'd never seen him do that. And I was trying to be appropriate while she shared her anguish, but y'all was thrilled. I just could not wait. So as soon as she got to a breaking point, I start, you know, telling her. And I said, I really think if you'll give this one more year and go to counseling and invite Jesus into it, if he doesn't do anything in a year, then go on and divorce them. And it was so funny because she goes, no, I've already told my friends. I've already told all my girlfriends. I've got to go forward with this divorce. And I said, just tell them that you're giving it one more year. And this was 12 years ago, and they're still married today. And all I, I mean, that was just the encouragement from the faith that I had grown in that Jesus really did care about my marriage. Well, the next year rolls around, and uh, lo and behold, Ellis forgot my birthday. <laughs> and I had, it was not the cruelty of the Lord to show me anything other than um, he grew up in a home where birthdays weren't celebrated. I grew up in a home where you got, if you got a gift, you got it on your birthday or at Christmas, and that was how they did it. And um, if he needed a bicycle or a car or whatever, his parents got it regardless of your birthday. So I really began to understand we are two different people with two different backgrounds, and that doesn't spell disaster or that he doesn't love me. But God went on that year again. I had a phone call from a neighbor that wanted me to sit with her younger child who was asleep while they ran the other one up to the school. And I'm sitting there. I've never even been in her house. I thought it was so weird. I didn't even know she had my phone number. It's her birthday again. It's two years in a row. Two years in a row on April 25th, right? Yeah. So I sat, when she got back, she had told me her husband was in the mortgage business, and it was when all that yeah. was falling apart, and um, that they were going to have to sell their home and move out of the neighborhood, that really things had turned around financially for them, and that he was depressed, and that she was worried about her marriage and what the future could bring. And again, I had this inappropriate <laughs> excitement about their sorrows, and I'm like... <laughs> Oh my gosh, I said a year ago, I got to pray with somebody. I said, I really think I'm here for more than just to babysit. I'm here to tell you Jesus really does care about the pain and the mm -hmm. suffering of this and that he can do something and something that the world would say nothing good could come out of. He cares. He can do something. And, and she really was so eager to hear that. She wanted to hear some encouragement, and I prayed with her. And uh, so the third year rolls around in Ellis. Well, they're still married. 
Yeah, and they're still married. And yeah. the third year rolls around, and Ellis did not forget my birthday. <laughs> 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 but the good thing was, neither did the Lord. And it was so fun. I was walking with an, a friend that I'm very close to that also lives in our neighborhood, and I'm saying... I'm looking, you know, for the Lord to bring someone in my path. He's done this two years ago, two years in a row, and I can share about how God's working in our marriage and He cares about the day-to-day pains I experience and I inflict on Ellis and vice versa. And she got real quiet. She goes, I think it's me. (laughs) She said, would you pray for my marriage? And y'all, all these people are in my neighborhood and I know them and I didn't know this about them. And, you know, there's just so much personal shame when your marriage is in crisis. And there's personal shame when your children aren't turning out the way you want them to do. And it's the hardest thing to talk about. And I just thought with my, the anticipation and excitement helped free her up and gave her hope to go on and share how much she was hurting. I feel like... Um, that's kind of what my childhood was like. My dad was really big into shame prevention. I don't know that there's a word for that in the Webster's Dictionary, but it's what I was about all the time. How can we prevent bringing shame on ourselves? So if you're a Christian in the South and your marriage is broken or you're broken yourself, boy, that is so shameful to own up to that is, is kind of what I got out of church. So having a small group that I could come in and just share and be honest and those people not, you know, judge me, but actually role model that they accepted me and loved me. And they thought Jesus would do something. They had the faith to go, oh, if he helped mine, he'll help yours. So that freed me up. And so by the third year, we began to think, well, maybe we have a marriage ministry. (laughs) Maybe that's what the Lord's bringing out of this, and he has. He's brought a lot of people in our community, and I will say, People on the soccer field have a lot more freedom to talk about their brokenness than they do at church. And, and I hope that's changing, but that was kind of our plan. Yeah. So um, going back to the Seymour Eustace E. Picotter theme. So second marriage sounds like everything's going well, certainly a lot better. Like Debbie was able to, her testimony I think was responsible. God used her. Uh, well, and by the way, this is her birthday week, right? So this is really cool. And I bought her a new purse for her birthday. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, we did. Yeah. Like so anyway, really uh, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> um, but just the scene we used to see, Picotta, you're still a sinner. Okay, you're still a sinner in 2009 when your wife comes to you. And, and all this is in these other people's marriage has been saved. And I really can't imagine being any more happy. And she says, you know, we ought to go to marriage counseling. <laughs> okay, the, the right response is you must be, the right response is not, you're crazy. <laughs> this can't get any better. Uh, it, she even said, we'll go see Gil Cracky, who's at Cathedral Church of the Advent, and, and, and does counseling one day a week. Um, and uh, I said, look, you can go, right? So this is like, you know, this is the beginning of our third marriage. Okay, we had laid down our arms, so to speak, I think during our second marriage, and uh, things were wonderful. I was just telling him, Paul, that our third marriage started when we went to see Gil Cracky for counseling, <laughs> uh, who is a dear friend of Paul's and devotee. But anyway, so, so Debbie went to see Gil for, I don't know, 
two or three months or something. Mm -hmm. And she had this joy about her. And I thought, wow, <laughs> I want to go see Gil, you know. Um, and, and we went together, and it was really beautiful. Why don't you just tell them what, um, what you got out of that? Well, I, um, we had started praying together some years mm. ago and learning how to forgive ourselves, forgive each other and ourselves before God. I feel like if he apologized in front of the Lord and didn't mean it, then, you know, God would strike him dead. It's his responsibility now if Ellis really didn't mean those apologies. So we really, I really had forgiven him, but I didn't trust him. And I also felt like he didn't even understand what he was apologizing for. So what we did when we went to see Gil is we went backwards, and I told him how in detail he made me feel when he said the things he said because he's so different from me. His reaction, he just couldn't understand that at that depth. So to have him go back, repeat what I said and say, I'm sorry, helped build some trust for the future. And just for him to understand me better, it was, mm -hmm. I didn't even understand it at the time why that was so important, but it really helped for him to not threaten me in the future when he got angry. And he would say, ask Gil, please tell Debbie when I say these things, when I'm angry, I don't mean them. If I say something when I'm angry, I mean it. I'm sorry. That's just I'm just the opposite of him. If I ever told you those things, I really meant them. And so again, it was hard. And, and Gil helped me understand that original sin is wanting everything created in your image. Oh my gosh! I kept thinking once the Lord worked on him enough, he was going to be so much more like me. What a prideful thing! And I had um, I just didn't even. Aside from Gil, I would have never seen that. <laughs> I was not headed in that direction because I thought anger was terrible. I thought emotion and passion led to bad things. Um, and I found out that was uh, not true. There was a lot of good there. And I don't want Ellis to be anybody than who God wants him to be. Yeah, that's our third marriage. There's this picture of Debbie. Um, that there's several pictures of her when she's like four or five. And she always had this little grin on her face. And you knew, based on that grin, she was ready to get into some mischief. And, when, and you know, here till from the other members of her family, she was a really mischievous child. And that's who I wanted to be married to. You know, I wanted her to be who God made her to be. I didn't want her to be some Southern Baptist Stepford wife, which is what I set out to have. You know, I mean, uh, I wanted her to be who God created her to be. And, uh, and that was what was so huge about That's after Gil, we came into our third marriage. And I began to love her for her relational skills and how her relational skills helped me with other relationships in my family, with my mother and my sister and others. And, and I think she began to appreciate how my love of the truth, uh, which is not always the most relational thing, but it is the bedrock it, uh, for, for relationship is actually coming to some uh, uh, understanding of what's really going on. She began to appreciate that. And then we realized, and this is why Genesis is my favorite book in the Bible, because Genesis says, leave your parents and cleave one to another. Well, up until the third portion of our marriage, which is probably the last seven or eight years, 
we still had all these things, wounds and or beliefs about what our marriage should be like that came from our parents. And I wanted my marriage to be like my parents. And she was kind of the opposite, but she was reacting against her parents, right, in terms of what she wanted. Genesis says, leave and cleave. And what you realize is that with the Holy Spirit, with Christ, you create something new. And it's different. And it doesn't have to look like what your parents had, my parents, or look opposite of what her parents had. It is something new. And when we came to realize that, you know, that has really just brought us into a new era in our marriage. And, you know, I would say the first marriage was war. The second marriage was truce. And the third marriage is now unity. And, um, you know, before we uh, lined up, I wanted to give credit to a couple of Mockingbird folks. Um, there's a guy named R.J. Hyman. Hayman, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. He's an Episcopal priest in Texas. He was, pardon? Thank you, Matt. So Hyman. So R.J. was, we were listening to his sermon one Sunday, and he said, <clears throat> um, you always have these guys who are like, well, like me, right? You know, so whatever the, you kind of go against the grain, you're oppositional. And so he's doing a Sunday school class on marriage, and this guy goes, RJ, RJ, I just want, I mean, I want my second marriage. It's great. Everybody should get divorced at least once. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, RJ didn't say, okay, well, but, but anyway, but it caused RJ to think about the stages of marriage that he and his wife had been through. And that's what was the genesis for this talk. Um, and then secondly, for any of y'all who saw the uh, breakout preview about the dancing God, uh, that came to us from a, a friend named Scott Jones, who was an Ember, a Mockingbird guy. He posted um, the Lord of the Dance, um, <laughs> which is to think of God as a dancing God is pretty remarkable. Um, and just a couple of weeks ago, you know, got up and we were writing the preview or whatever, and said, okay, Debbie, so they've just bombed the Coptic Christians. Um, our 16-year-old dog has died. <laughs> Which, and so we didn't know, if, <clears throat> I didn't know if Debbie should come or not because our 16-year-old dog has died. And I said, so can we believe in a God who dances, right, when this is going on? And uh, Debbie, who's quite a theologian in her own right, said, uh, <laughs> God can dance because he knows the end of the story. And uh, I'd like to leave you with this, uh, a final quote. This is from Ivan to Alyosha, uh, his younger brother, who was the Eastern Orthodox priest in Brothers Karamazov. So this is Dostoevsky speaking. <clears throat> and so Ivan is saying to his brother, you know, God knows the end of history. He can dance. Here's the end of history that I believe in and hope for. Ivan, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for, that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man, that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, <laughs> something so precious will come to pass <clears throat> that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement <laughs> of all the crimes of, <laughs> of humanity, <clears throat> for all the blood that they've shed, 
that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. Amen. And that's, thank you for coming.